I think the really interesting part of this article is where he talks about the fault lines and how often the the divisions between like ones and threes are really pronounced and twos and fours are really pronounced. And I feel like I have experienced that reality. I graduated from seminary in 2006. So I've been a pastor for 15 years. It doesn't feel like that long in some ways, but when I think about the first church I pastored, there would have been people in that congregation who I would say were maybe like a 1.5 all the way to fours who loved each other in the same church, spent time together. Now, not, not, not so much the case. I, I, the previous church I pastored, I saw people go from like a two to slipping out the window as a four in like a matter of days, and they didn't stop anywhere in the middle. And I think that kind of observation we're making about uh, is culture or theology primary explains a lot of that movement. You want to you you continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse from the cops? Welcome to Everything Just Changed, where we envision a post-culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. All right, well, we are going to be doing something that we haven't done in quite a while, like several months, I think it's been, since we have done an episode where we haven't had a guest to, to interview on, on here. So this one's going to be a little bit more freewheeling, but we have a really good prompt that we think is is both kind of informing where we're going, encapsulating where we've been, and also providing some really interesting opportunities for for, for continuing down this path of, of king and kingdom that we've been talking about for for a, over a year and a half, almost a year and a half now. Yeah. So almost a year. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. We're not coming at this as like experts who have it figured out, but as recon pastors dropping behind the front lines of the cultural divisions and shifts that are happening right now and trying to just describe what we're seeing in a way that is super open-handed and from a posture of learning. And so one of those ways that we have really been helped by and learned from uh, in this year in particular is this article that Mirror Orthodoxy published this spring. It is called The Six-Way Fracturing of Evangelicalism. Uh, written by Michael Graham with Skylar Flowers. And we're going to talk about this article today because it it made some waves this spring. And there was a lot of conversation, especially on social media, about this article. But I think this is one that is is aging very well in the relatively <laughs> lightning fast yeah. news cycle. But also, I think this is going to... This is aging since the spring. Exactly. Yeah. It's a teenager it's, already. It is. It is. Uh, its voice is cracking. One leg is longer than the other, and it's super anxious <laughs> around girls. I don't have any idea why that analogy works or not. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no. This I think this article is going to age really well because it it is a very much a cultural roadmap of where we've been, but also a, a pretty broad outline of where it feels like we're going. And if we could just say, like, it maps really well with the observations we've been making. He, you know, he some of the distinctions he draws, he draws them differently. But I think this is super helpful in terms of, you know, our own processing of why the secular right and secular left have so much in common with Mm -hmm. one another and why evangelicalism and fundamentalism are kind of morphing in strange ways. So yeah, I'm super excited for this, uh, this conversation today. We've been like chomping at the bit to talk about this article and trying to figure out how we're going to do it. And we're like, yeah, we're just not going to, we just need the time to talk about it together. So here's the thesis. Here's the prompt for it. 
Uh, he quotes Timothy Dalrymple, the president and CEO of Christianity Today, about this mutual observation that many pastors and journalists, church leaders, cultural commentators have been noticed, and that is this. It says, new fractures are forming within the American evangelical movement, fractures that do not run along the usual regional, denominational, ethnic, or political lines. Couples, families, friends, and congregations, once united in their commitment to Christ, are now dividing over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. In fact, they are not merely dividing, but becoming incomprehensible to one another. Mm. I, I don't care who you are. There is no way that you can hear that quote and not bring to mind multiple examples of friends, family, church members. It doesn't matter. Neighbors who it feels like one or both of you have shifted or changed in over the last year and a half, especially, but really over the last four to five years in ways that are not deeply problematic for your relational connection to them. And this is this is happening in our culture, but he is really applying this inside the white American evangelical church. And so he divides it into six subcultures or categories. Uh, and we're going to walk through these briefly. I don't want to just read the article to you. So we're going to have this article linked in the show notes. And we highly recommend bookmarking this one and referencing it multiple times over the next months and years, maybe even. I, I love the observation he makes right after that quote from Timothy Dalrymple, which is sort of stating the, just the reality of what's happening and then his observation is, he says this, the reality is that while many in the evangelical movement thought their bonds were primarily or exclusively theological or missional, that's what we thought held us together, mm -hmm. many of those bonds were actually political, cultural, and socioeconomic. And as that has all been just blown up in the last four or five years, polarization and then lack of embodied community during the pandemic kind of the unmasking of latent secularism that we've all imbibed. And then you take that and you apply it to the counterfeit institution of social media, which reduces every you know real person interaction to a two-dimensional avatar for a culture war narrative. And it's just like yeah. bonkers, right? Yeah. And on that note yeah. in particular, I, I, I would recommend too, um, we, we talked about this in January, I think, uh, in one of our episodes, but I wrote an article for Mere Orthodoxy called The Church Amongst the Counterfeit Institutions, and that pairs really well with this because it it describes the same kind of cultural dynamics and the effect that social media has on these categories from a from a different angle. But we're 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 observing and 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 examining the same thing. So here are the six kind of subcultures and categories. The first is and. These numbers are really important because we're going to reference them as we go. Uh, number one is is neo-fundamentalist. And these are going to be the most uh, culturally, politically uh, right wing of, of these categories. Uh, and he says that they have deep concerns about both political and theological liberalism. He says that there's some overlap and co-belligerency with Christian nationalism, which he defines as a syncretism of right wing nationalism and Christianity. But, and I think this is a really important but const and constructive point. He says that neo-fundamentalists do so with more theological vocabulary and rationality. And it's because they have these deep worries with the church's drift towards liberalism and the way secular ideologies are finding homes in the church. And I think it's important, by the way, and I just want to note on this one in particular, it's really important that we describe these and engage with these from a posture that this is still, these are still people within the church despite profound disagreements uh, with them, because if we don't, we're actually giving into the very thesis 
that this author is writing about and is so problematic, which mm, is that we are allowing totally. cultural divisions to define our unity far yeah. more than theological or missional ones. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think there's a lot in in this that you know we can we agree with the positives and disagree with the negatives and. I think the he doesn't use exactly this terminology, but sort of the adjacent to Christian nationalism is a helpful mm-hmm. distinction here because, you know, by and large, these are not people who are overtly espousing Christian nationalism, but have a lot of, um, you know, co-belligerence in that direction. And then when you critique and say that's Christian nationalism, they use theological terms to say, no, that's not actually what I'm doing. Yeah, that's And that's really hard and really frustrating. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think, I think that critique is really important while also not denying, you know, some of the number one's critiques of, you know, there are some places in the church where secularism is making tremendous inroads and we do need to be aware of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, the hard part about even this category in particular, the hard part about the conversation is like, I have friends who I think we would both agree they are in this category and I'm not for the record. I'm sure that's Mm -hmm. really surprising to anyone who's (laughs) listened to more than one episode of this. But if you, if I didn't know them and have a relationship with them, their presence on social media, I would have, I would have a really hard time, if not impossible, to distinguish between a neo-fundamentalist and a Christian nationalist in this sense. And it is really that disembodying of relationships that is making these fault lines so problematic. And so this just reinforces the importance of like embodied relationships and connections with people. All right. Number two. Number two is mainstream evangelical, right? This applies to probably what we would consider the classical or traditional definition of of evangelicalism, often referred to as the Bebbington quadrilateral of of these four facets, conversionism, activism, biblicism, and crucicentrism. And the emphasis of this group, he says, is on the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Concerning threats within the church, they share some concern for for the secular rights influence on Christianity, including the destructive pull of Christian nationalism but are far more concerned by the secular left's influence and the desire to assimilate since the world still remains so hostile. And so they are probably, these kinds of churches and this this kind of cultural subculture is primarily and especially less involved in the culture wars and is probably trying to like stay out of it and not engage. And so they avoid certain topics or certain flashpoints that are, that are controversial. And they're going to be particularly relational in their ethos and in their philosophy of ministry. And so Mm. I would say this is probably still the majority of especially non-denominational evangelicalism. Yeah, I would say that this describes most non-denominational and megachurch evangelicalism, not exclusively, but for the most part. Yeah, and I think you will see, and we'll we'll get into this more later, but you may find that there's a two-like church that has kind of flavors or, or gestures toward neo-fundamentalism or neo-evangelical, which is the next mm-hmm. category, but it, it's a gesture. It's not their primary posture. And, and that's, mm. which is, whichever is primary is, is very important uh, for this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Number three, like I just said, is neo-evangelical. This is where things start to get a little bit interesting because he defines neo-evangelical as people who would see themselves as quote, global evangelicals, and are doctrinally evangelicals with some philosophy of ministry differences, but no longer use the term evangelical in some circumstances in the American context as the term as an identifier has evolved to be more political than theological. 
just for full yeah. disclosure, this is probably where I'm coming from. Yeah, this is totally where I am. So the, the quote that, that hits this for me, this group, he says, they have not totally abandoned evangelical identification and still likely labor in churches with the broadest spectrum of these groups, meaning this across pastors who find themselves in this category are pastoring churches from like, you know, maybe 1.5 to 3.5. Mm. Outside of the church, this group feels largely homeless in today's world. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, this, I feel like, is one of the paradoxes for me. This is where I am, and I sort of feel like uh, this is an overly blunt statement, but it seems to me like this is the place that it makes sense to be. Mm. If we're taking the Bible seriously and we're being culturally aware of the place that we're living, I think this is where we should be, just to put my cards on the table. But when I look around, I actually see very, very few Christians occupying this mm. space. You know, within our own denomination, we're both in the PCA. We know not everybody who listens is in the PCA, and this isn't supposed to be directly about the PCA. But within our own denomination, there's a lot of 1.5s and 2s in our denomination. We have a lot of friends that I would think are probably 3 to 3.5. On Twitter, there's a lot of vocal 4s and 5s and 6s, for that matter. There's not a lot of people occupying this space. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's... Frankly, it's kind of a hard space to occupy because, right, there is a a threes. Neo evangelicals are greatly concerned about issues of racism, misogyny, and spiritual abuse within the church, and and I would say probably see the challenges for the evangelical church going forward. The most important challenges for us to address as a church, I would say new evangelicals will will tend towards seeing that as internal problems, not external. And and mm-hmm. external problems, yeah. it's not that we're uh, unaware of or blind to them or, or naive about their, their danger. It's that like, how in the world can we possibly face them if we don't clean the inside of our cup first? Totally. Yeah. We can only take responsibility for our problems, not for the problems outside of Absolutely. You know, our circles. Yeah. And so... Yeah. Okay, number four. Yeah, well, I, I want to say one more thing about number three. Um, your point, I agree with you in that I, I think this is where we should all be. <laughs> and also, I want to affirm that, like, anybody listening who's not there, you're at whatever number, whether it's a, it's like a, a one, two, three, four, whatever, or, or a half integer between, you're there because you think everybody should be there, right? <laughs> or you're yeah, at least to some totally. degree, like, we're, we're, we're operating in a... In a, in a we can't avoid our bias in this sense. And it's important to allow space for that. So number four, post-evangelical. This one for me has been one of the harder ones to like put flesh on because I've used the term post-evangelical within our own church, the table to apply to probably threes and also fours, like as one group. And, And so this is blurry for me, but he defines it as those who've fully left evangelicalism from a self identification standpoint and reject the evangelical label yet yet are still churched and likely still agree with the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. They're more deconstructed than neo-evangelicals, and they are more vocal in their critiques of ones and twos than threes would be. Um, and some remain firmly in Protestant circles, and others have crossed over into mainline Catholic or Orthodox traditions while still holding to the basic creeds. I think the really important part about that last sentence in particular is that there is a a cultural dissonance, a, a lack of connection to the forms of evangelicalism. And I mean, especially kind of the non-denominational band on a stage, large church, 
programmatic approach. Mm-hmm. And there's a dissatisfaction of that. And post-evangelicals are literally trying anything else. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. In some ways, this can feel like a, a difference of emphasis between the three and the four. It's certainly a matter of like, to what extent are you, do you carry disdain for the word evangelical at this point? I think in general, I don't have, having put my cards on the table about being a three, I don't have a whole lot of problem with any of the things he describes, uh, the way he describes the four. I think the, the questions in my mind come down to, one, the authority of Scripture. I think in some places that starts to get a little bit fuzzy, and we can start, we talk about that more later. But I also think that one of my questions is a lack of concern for the secular left. In, in this move, I think those who are in the four category, in this move away from evangelicalism, can start to adopt sort of the, the values of the social left and then want to import those into the church. And I wonder how long that position is actually tenable for. Yeah. Like, is it possible? Or, I mean, even put it like this. Like, if you are a, you know, you're, you're married and you have kids and this is where you are. I'm not sure how you raise your kids in this expression of Christianity. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's tenable in the long run. Yeah. I listened to uh, an interview with Michael Graham, and he was saying that the way that he sees this category and and how it is similar to the concerns about the, you know, the internal church problems that the threes, the new evangelicals see, but he says he sees the primary difference being affect in that post-evangelicals typically have a more direct or personal negative experience within evangelicalism, as opposed to the threes Mm -hmm. are like hearing about it, they're seeing it, but a lot of fours have been victim to it in a lot of ways. Totally. And I would say that 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 is actually like a big part of why I'm probably a three and not a four. Sure. And and that's why in a lot of times I like, I I think we've talked about this in, in different context here before that because of your and I's kind of complementary differences in experience, um, you having grown up in the church, me having not grown up in the church, me having mm-hmm. experienced spiritual abuse myself, I kind of, I really empathize with the force. I, I get that. And mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, if I weren't a pastor and having to be responsible for an, an institution, I could see mm-hmm. myself being exceedingly frustrated with the church. And, mm-hmm. but I'm really grateful that I'm a pastor for that reason because I, I think it's unsustainable to stay as a four. And I, I think I've seen this even within our own church, people who come to the table as fours, they can't stay there forever. They either mm-hmm. kind of yeah. grow into a three or deconstruct into a five because the fours is kind of defined in many ways by negative experience. You begin to lose sight of the cross and the empty tomb, and you, it's it's not a hopeful, it's not a long-term hopeful mm-hmm. place to stay. Totally. And again, that's why I think the, the real question is there is if you hold on to the authority of Scripture, then you're probably going to have to grow, grow into a three. And if you don't or try to accommodate, we're going to talk more about this, but accommodate Scripture to culture, then you're on your way to five and beyond. The, some of you, as we're, as we're talking about this, are probably wondering, you know, what about exvangelicalism or exvangelicals? Because that's a that's a, a very viral term now, especially in social media, and that is an explicit label that is being used by many who have outright left evangelicalism. And 
Graham does, I think, a really good job of just validating that he's kind of avoiding that term in part because it is a rapidly evolving definition and and can encompass everything from kind of three, 3.5 through all the way to like six, which again, we're going to talk about those categories in a minute. But I, I would say that that point about experience versus does your experience carry primary authority or does something transcendent? And that is... a a significant factor, if not the primary factor in determining whether mm-hmm. or not that growth into a three happens or a deconstruction into five. So let me just yeah. summarize five and six really quick. Yeah, I was going to say, let's do them, let's hit those quick. He says five is just de-churched, right? They've left the church, left evangelicalism. They're not even trying to like be involved in that institution or the movement generally, but they still at least hold to some orthodox Christian beliefs. That's just de-churched, Right. And then six, mm-hmm. he would say de-churched, but also deconverted. And this, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's helpful as, an, as a caveat to just point out how much all of these in many ways, but especially that four, five, and six is a spectrum. And I think many people are in very in-between stages in some of these. And yeah. even within, oh my gosh, like if that weren't true before the pandemic hit, that is especially true now too. Super helpful. I think this ca- this spectrum between one and six, and especially one and five, because by the time you're six, you're not considering yourself a Christian. It's a really helpful way to think about it. I think a lot of the differences here stem from the way that we view culture and theology and the interaction of those two things. And here's why I'm a three, and why this is where I think we should be at, at threes. <laughs> In a sense that I would say that threes are people who are trying very hard to keep biblical authority and theology primary, but st- but doing that while being attentive to cultural concerns. Mm. Okay, and I think ones and twos would want to say that they're uh, concerned that the culture is supplanting theology, so they're doubling down on the on on like theological positions. But that seems to be more and more like in a fundamentalist direction. And I think a lot of what we've tried to do in this podcast, Brad, is actually saying, I think that there's a lack of awareness of the extent to which those theological concerns are culturally bound and conditioned. Mm. And so, so a lot of those, um, you know, that, that description of the one as being sort of adjacent to Christian nationalism, but doing it in sophisticated theological language, it sounds like theology. It's, it's I would say, cultural mm-hmm. captivity, right? So on the one and two, I think, is a little bit more culture-bound, even though they would not agree with that. And I just... I want to I want to like articulate it the way that that sort of person would articulate it, but I don't think well, I would I, agree. I think <laughs> so. I just yeah. want to state that. <laughs> I mean, I, I would agree <laughs> and even apply that same principle to you know the other end of that spectrum as you go in the opposite direction too. Uh, totally. Because totally. And yeah. this is something we were talking about this even apart from this article the other day. But I, I feel like I've noticed increasingly, and this came up for me. I was listening to a uh, Twitter Spaces. I don't even know what to call it. It's basically Twitter's like copy pasting of Clubhouse. <laughs> and there was a question that was asked on there. Uh, her name's Leah. She's a follower. I follow her on Twitter. She's a great follower, by the way. And I think it's at Sassy Seminarian is her, uh, is her handle. And she asked, to what degree in the uh, rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast that is just taking the world by storm right now, to what degree did complementarian theology influence the abuse the spiritual abuse that driscoll visited on 
Mars Hill? Like, to what degree is that inseparable from the abuse? And that was a really, that's a good question that I wish more people would be asking. Not because I think complementarianism is bad. We're complementarian here. I don't see enough people asking the question, to what degree are these practices being influenced by culture versus our theological convictions. And can we, yeah, how do yeah. we have that well, and that's kind the, of uh, self-awareness and cultural intelligence to be able to, to pick yeah. that apart? And I think too often what we yeah. see instead is depending on which side of the spectrum you, you count yourself on, you either want to insist that it's theological if you disagree with it, that's the reason why. Or if you agree with the expression of it and you want to defend it, then you say, that's not theological, that's sociological or cultural or historical. And I don't mm-hmm. think there are many people being terribly honest about that. And I don't know that that's necessarily intentional. I think part of the confusion of all of the rapid cultural change we're experiencing makes it really hard to know and see. But that should engender in us some humility. Well, and that I think that's why I'm saying that I think the three position is actually incredibly mm. rare. Because I mean, to take the issue of complementarianism that you already raised, we are complementarians, but we would be very frustrated and critical of the ways that we often see ones and twos practicing yeah, complementarianism. Sure. But on the other side, fours and fives, I think, have made culture or sociology primary, and fours are trying to fit theology into their into their like sociological mold and a lesser to a lesser extent fives are trying to do so. And so when it, when it comes to cultural like flashpoint kind of topics for fours and fives, the cultural question takes precedent and theology gets interpreted in light of that. One more really good example of that. And I want to be careful here because I have not read Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Dumay. So I want to be really careful not to ascribe motive or intention to her. But the way that I most often see that book being applied to the church, it is to say this historical account, and Dumais has has reminded many people many times that she is a historian, not a theologian. She's not trying to be. She's trying to provide a historical sociological account. Which means she's trying to be descriptive and not prescriptive. I I at least hope so. And I know she is. That's well... I'm not sure that that's the way that she always comes across, but that's when she makes that defense, that's what totally. she's trying to say. And she has some bias. She is herself egalitarian. And we complementarians can and should learn from that. We should be able to take that historical perspective and, and use that as a lens to help us ask the question, to what degree is our practice informed by our doctrinal convictions versus our sociological or cultural conditioning? We should always be asking that question. And yet the way that I see it most often used, cited, quoted, et cetera, is to weaponize it against doctrinal positions in ways that I don't even know if Dume would agree with. Mm -hmm. But that lack of carefulness and application is, oh man, it makes having this conversation so hard. And it's it's part of what is contributing to and symptomatic of these massive fractures within evangelicalism. Okay, so these six categories, I think, descriptively are super helpful, but I think the really interesting part of this article is where he talks about the fault lines and how often the the divisions between like ones and threes are really pronounced and twos and fours are really pronounced. And I feel like I have experienced that reality. Mm. I graduated from seminary in 2006, so I've been a pastor for 15 years 
it doesn't feel like that long in some ways, but when I think about the first church I pastored, there would have been people in that congregation who I would say were maybe like a 1.5 all the way to fours, four and a halves, um, who loved each other in the same church, spent time together, you know, benefited from each other's perspectives now, not, not, not so much the case. I, I, the church that, <laughs> let me just say the, the previous church I pastored, I saw people go from like a two to slipping out the window as a four in like a matter of days mm. and they didn't stop anywhere in the middle. Yeah. And I think that, that, that kind of observation we're making about uh, is culture or theology primary mm. explains a lot of that movement from two to four mm-hmm. because you were just we're, we're making culture primary. And, and when we, when we say, well, the church is wrong on this issue, then we have to just bypass the theological reality or, 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 or wrestling with that issue and just move straight to the kind of the deconverting position. I mean, we've been talking about this for over a year and a half. I mean, we, the whole prompt for this podcast was how much evangelicalism's complicity with individualism and it's, it's, syncretism with that has discipled people right out of the church because we have at least implicitly communicated, especially to younger generations, that this cultural form is the only biblically faithful one. But when they read scripture and they see Jesus's concern for the poor and they read the the prophets, they realize that Totally. This is not actually the case, and that creates a such a significant existential crisis that without anything in between, let me just put it this way. At the table, most of our people came to the table, and this is their first time ever experiencing a church that had threes in it. And the, the fault lines between twos and fours and ones and threes make it especially hard for churches that are pr- primarily three neo-evangelical to actually succeed and become viable because it's too easy to be defined by something that you're against. It's, it is, it is super interesting the way he maps out those fault lines. I will say this, one of the implications that he dives into as a result of those fault lines is he, he noted that ones and fours aren't really arguing because they aren't coexisting in the same church or even the same denomination anymore. That ship sailed. And so it's really the two integers away that we're having these arguments with. And because of that, we're watching and seeing an acceleration of a sorting, of a sorting into three types of churches. Type A, which he says are are made up of ones and twos. Type B, which he says are twos and threes. And then type C, which are threes and fours. Bryce, it was so freaking eerie to read the type C church description in this article because it how many times have I described and said the table had been trying to reach those disenfranchised and, and frustrated with evangelicalism, our neighbors, and we mm-hmm. accidentally, we did not intend to do this, but ended up becoming a refuge and a home for post-evangelicals who are giving the church one last chance. And we just happened to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's super interesting because the church that we planted in Orange County, I would say is more of the the two and three, which is that type B church and now moving to work with you at the table in a type C church is just, it's been super interesting. And yet like I'm apparently welcome in both. Yeah, so. that's great. <laughs> so far. I mean, it's only been a few months. We'll that's see. True. That's true. <laughs> but no, this is, 
let me let me just kind of reinforce. Uh, you know, you were saying earlier, Bryce, that it really seems like the neo evangelical category is the least common or the most rare within the broader conversation around evangelicalism. And I, I to reinforce that, it was really interesting. I remember when this article first came out, David French actually retweeted it and asked, you know, people who are following him, where where would you see yourself landing? Which which number would you identify as? I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned because this is a former senior editor at the National Review, right? This is he is. Cons- I didn't see what he said, so I'm I'm dying to hear. Oh no, he found it. He found it incredibly helpful. Yeah. What was most interesting were the responses he got, okay. and this is anecdotal. Like I didn't like count, but my sense of it in with within a week after him retweeting this, at least. At least, I'm being very conservative here. At least sixty percent of the responses and comments said that they were a three or a four, hmm. Hmm. and a lot of them, the vast majority of those, said, "Hey, where are these type C churches?" Yeah. Well, like, you know, I don't know of any that exist. But see, so I think that's confirmation bias because here's the thing: as we've talked about, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, getting a better sense of who's listening to our podcast. One of the things that we've we've described um, our listeners as is. Christians who like David French. So (laughs) (laughs) that's okay. That's fair. I I think that may be confirmation bias. You know, the fact that there are 800 threes in the world does not mean that there are an abundance of us, relatively speaking. (laughs) Okay. That's fair. What I will say though, is it seems to me that the, the majority, like most type C churches are type C churches because either they exist Outside of the kind of evangelical cultural strongholds of the country, i.e., the Southeast and parts, especially parts of the Midwest too, and and are are primarily located in like the post-Christian West or Pacific Northwest and the maybe the, the Northeast or global cities, right? I, mm-hmm. And and I would say there are also like these pockets of them in like major cities within evangelical strongholds but they are like very small pockets right but here's here's the here's the good news about this and and Graham actually says this explicitly in his article too is this is a huge opportunity that where there is this frustration with the cultural forms of evangelicalism where we can preserve the good theological convictions of evangelicalism especially like at least the the Bebbington quadrilateral if we can adapt to cultural forms that don't compromise the way that we form and make disciples, I mean, this is the challenge, right? This is the challenge for pastors and church planters trying to reach either the next generation or our neighbors. It doesn't matter. It's still the same, but that is a huge opportunity. So it is super important, but it is super difficult to keep theology primary while embracing theological concerns. That's my takeaway from this whole thing. You know, I I mean, this, this, this is going to make me sound more like a one, but I've said this already, like it all comes down to the authority of scripture ultimately is it's not about living in, you know, closing our eyes and plugging our ears to what's happening in our world, but keeping theology primary, keeping biblical concerns, primary, keeping the word of God as our primary interpretive lens for the world that we're living in while still being aware of and sympathetic to and embracing the concerns of our culture and our neighbors. That is the most important thing in terms of ministry, and it is so incredibly difficult to do. 
what is most interesting to me and what I would love to explore more. And, and I'm, I, at some point, I think it would be really great to get Graham in here for an interview because he he mentions some of this a little bit in the article, but it's I think it's a huge opportunity to explore, which is the, the generational dynamics. Specifically, we're, we're in the midst of some significant generational change, but also some that's happening in some very unique ways. As an example, my wife works for one of the largest medical device companies in the world. And she was sharing with me that her company has been doing this training on generational cultural differences because this is the first time in history that a company as a normative experience has four generations worth of employees within the same mm-hmm. company. Right, because boomers are taking longer to retire than their parents, and the the same kind of entry level job positions are staying the same, and so that is stretching and, and expanding this cultural spectrum. And it's so funny to me. Like she sent me a a PDF, a one page PDF that had enlisted generational distinctives based on how you communicate and use text versus email versus chat versus phone calls and like your your tendencies as yeah. a way of like trying to understand one another and not interpret these kind of cultural preferences as personal affronts. And I'm sitting here when she tells me this, I'm just like, oh my God, we need this as a church. That's so hilarious and interesting because that can so easily, like descriptions can can so often start to be used in pejorative ways. I have a friend who calls me, I, I moved across the country, you know, three months ago. And so a friend called me and he leaves his voicemail and he, he always does this. He goes, oh yeah, your generation never wants to answer the phone. And I have to always go, number one, I am not a millennial. Okay. I was born in 1980. Number two, I have a job. That's why I didn't answer your call. <laughs> well, as a zennial, a, a analog childhood and digital adulthood, a geriatric millennial, I would say that shoe fits. I don't yeah. like it. Yeah. Anyway, but the important thing here is, right, and, and this is what I'm wrestling with, right? If you, if you map this onto generational differences, it's pretty easy to see that typically boomers are going to land in type A churches, sometimes type B, but I think primarily type A. We don't even have to go into how the boomer generation is, is especially uh, at the front wheel and driving the culture wars. Gen X and millennials, I, I'd say you could see type B or type C in, mm-hmm. in those churches. But Gen Z and beyond, I mean, I don't see any type A or type B church being able to reach a Gen Z mm-hmm. once they are out of their parents' home or out of college. Wow. This, so, so this is a growing urgency. And the, the, the article talked about how if, if this is the case, then it's going to be really hard for churches of different types to even exist within the same denomination, mm. right? And if that's the case, how in the world do we as, a, as, as the church, as the body of Christ, not give into the cultural divisions such that we lose the intergenerational one body, many parts, and multicultural aspects of this? Like, mm. we are... We have a choice in this moment of whether we allow these fault lines to define the church's welcome, or do we learn from them? Do we give in to them and and just say this is unavoidable and inescapable? And and I, this is one of the things I think is the most interesting part, and probably under underappreciated part of the the rise of Mars Hill podcast is episode two when they were talking about how Driscoll and 
the emerging church was largely a reaction to boomer seeker sensitive mm. movement. Yeah. Uh, this begs the question as millennials, when boomers retire and we take the reins, finally, no angst there. When you're on social security. Yeah. <laughs> right. When, when that happens, like, how do we not just create another reactive movement? Yeah. A whole further... another culture war. Yeah. With different, like, different fault lines. Yeah. Because if there's anything that there actually might be a common denominator across these different subcultures, it, it, it is the sheer exhaustion of having to do this. And it, it is understandable that we would give into the, the exhaustion that would cause us to, to just accept the tribal divisions. But we've got to find a way to actually keep and include more than one integer away from these categories mm. within the body of Christ and within a single community. Because the mm. more that we fracture, the more homogenous we become, the harder it will be actually to tolerate differences and disagreements. And the harder it's going to be to do any ministry. Like this is, I, I think this is a cultural crisis mm. we're in the midst of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that makes me think of Acts 11, I think, where it says the Christians were, f- they were first called Christians in Antioch because Antioch is a divided city hmm. where essentially different different races, nationalities, ethnicities lived in different ghettos within the city, and oh. people are climbing over walls to be together, and they could no longer consider the followers of Jesus to be a sect of Judaism anymore because it was multi-generational, multinational. And so the Christians, they were first called Christians in Antioch. And that's that's what we need again today. Well, thank God that there is some precedence and the power of the gospel and the presence of the spirit absolutely yeah. has not just the potential, but a historical precedent for mm-hmm. overcoming this. And so that is the challenge and that is what we are trying to accomplish and 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 have conversations and, and facilitate as as part yeah. of this podcast and yeah. as, as part of our ministry. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great transition point. We wanted to wrap up this episode by talking about where we're going from here. Part of what we are realizing, we are, you know, we've been doing this podcast for about a year and a half. We started this just after the pandemic uh, started, and it seems like a good time to kind of hit pause and reflect and regroup. I also have a job now, and uh, I, I I didn't have. I was sort of on a extended <laughs> sabbatical of sorts for Unpaid. a lot of a lot of the time we were doing uh, this podcast. And and you are taking paternity leave for a couple months, and so it's a good time for us to kind of pause and reflect on what we've been doing and where we're going, and really to say that that we are trying to figure this out. And I think if anything, we've realized that we're not the experts here, but we want to try to be guides asking good questions. We've used the image of like the paratroopers, you know, launching behind culture line, behind the lines of the culture war to try to just chart the landscape and figure out what's going on. We have really enjoyed hearing from you. It seems like more and more just informally on social media. And we got to just say this, when we were at General Assembly for the PCA, we know not everybody knows what that means, but those of you that were there, it was awesome to just hear from so many of you who have been listening to our podcast. And totally disorienting. Totally disoriented. It was like, what is going on here and why are so many people listening to us? But that's really encouraging. Thank you so much. We're trying to clarify who we think our audience is. And and we want to just be more clear in talking with you and helping you. And so we, we I think there's two real like key parts of our audience. One is there are pastors like us for whom ministry has turned out to be very, very different than we expected it was going to be in seminary. And we're kind of in this cultural landscape where we feel politically homeless. 
there's questions about how do we just continue to minister? How can I pastor my church, but keep loving my neighbor and reach my neighbor at the same time? And partly what we want to do in this podcast is chart the cultural landscape in a way that helps you know that you're not alone, that that we are wrestling through this. We don't have the answers, but we want to validate your experience and say that this is actually what faithfulness looks like. If you're not feeling any cultural tension as we are like living through a time of incredible cultural transformation, then you're probably not doing faithful gospel ministry. And so our hope is to bring resources to help you get clarity and perspective on the challenges that you're facing in ministry. And we're super excited to, to you know, be a resource for you. Uh, the, the other part of our audience is sort of the thoughtful Christian leader. And I think these are people who are just really thoughtful about what is happening in the cultural moment that we're living through and are trying really hard to hold together their awareness of and love for what's happening in our culture with the church. And these are people who are theologically hungry. You're reading the Bible and you're looking at the evangelical church and you're saying like, one of these is not like the other. And how do I hold these two things together? And maybe you're wondering, given the state of the church, can this church really be a home for you? Hmm. And I hope partly what we're able to do is say, we are pastors and we get this. We love you. We need you. We need your challenge. We need your perspective. And we want to wrestle through this with you. And we also want to say, it's not despite our theological perspective that we're still pastors. It's because of our theological perspective, our love for Jesus and his word and people in our communities that drives us to not give up on the church. And sometimes at the end of the day, I feel like Peter, when he when he's going, you know, where else are we going to go? Like, you're not mm-hmm. wrong. I see the challenges and the problems that you're identifying here. But where else are we going to go? Even just to use and leverage the categories of this article that we just talked about. I don't know how to reach neo-fundamentalists. And I also don't really have any clue where to start with sixes, because that's often when it's when it's a coming out of evangelicalism, it's often a particularly a, a hostile and difficult mm-hmm. one. What we've heard in feedback uh, as a response to this podcast is that o- almost all of you would find yourself in the category of a two to four in, mm-hmm. in that spectrum. Yeah. And and you are struggling in many ways. The twos and fours don't have a clue how to reach each other yeah. uh, or how to connect with each other or coexist in the same community. And we're sitting here in the middle like, guys, we need all of you. Mm-hmm. Like, there's totally. no way the church can be the church. And I would say we need the ones through sixes. Yes. But we especially, we got to do what we can here. We need the twos and fours <laughs> and we need the twos and fours to begin to, ha- to, to develop some sympathy for one another too. And an awareness yeah. that they need each other. Yes. Because like I said earlier, yes. the more we atomize into more homogenous subgroups, the way that social media incentivizes and shapes us to do so, the more difficult it will be to actually love our en- our neighbor, never mind our enemy as mm-hmm. ourselves. Yeah. So I feel like in a lot of ways, what we're trying to do is say there is a way past the culture wars or at least like we really believe there is, and we're not entirely sure what it is. I think I'm pretty quick to discern when it's what, what is not the way past the culture war, but we want to explore that reality with you. And so that's, that's kind of big picture stuff. 
real practical. We're going to start doing like shorter series. I don't know if this is the end of season three. I don't know if we're going to say season again ever, because it's sort of like (laughs) we start off with this great idea of like, this is what we're going to do. And then three or four episodes in, it starts to, the wheels come off and we just talk about things. So we're going to start trying to do shorter series of like five to seven episodes. We've explored identity. We want to do a series on power. We want to do a series like you've talked about exploring changing generation and demographic trends. But we also want to hear from you. And so you may or may not know that we started a Substack. If you go to kingandkingdom.community, we would love to engage with you. We've heard from many of you. We would love to hear from more of you. We could really use your help. Like I said, we have been sort of like overwhelmed in a good way over the summer with how many of you have let us know how much you've appreciated the podcast. And I know that we say this every episode, but would you please help us spread the word? It, it, it helps. <laughs> no, really, please. It, it helps us as we are trying to reach guests that you want to hear from to know that our podcast is growing. And frankly, it's just tremendously encouraging to us and helps us know that we should keep doing this. So if you appreciate what we're doing here, we would love to hear from you. Please jump on to kingandkingdom.community and leave us a comment there. And please share this with a friend. We would really appreciate it. So I know I've said this before, but for real this time, we're taking a few weeks off. Brad's baby was born last night, so congratulations to Brad and your family. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new series on power, so please subscribe so you don't miss that. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Danny Rankin, who also designed our logo. Thanks also to Nathan Michelle, who edits our podcast. We'll be back in a few weeks helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world on Everything Just Changed.